0: Have you ever seen the Simpsons episode where Bart goes to Australia?
1: Is that where the, the toilets flush the other way?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've seen that. One. <laughs> but in the embassy, they 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 create a machine so that the toilets right, 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 uh, the Yeah, yeah. Going, yeah that's but the best coming. line of that is like we we, we have this machine uh, to counteract the effects so that the 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 toilets go in the correct American way. <laughs> I love it. <don't> think... <laughs> but one of the things that's funny about that episode is that, when, so the, the reason it starts is Bart makes these prank calls and like leaves the phone on and so they, they get like a, it was like a collect call to Australia it's like $300 bill or something like that and then so they get he, he has to go to tr- on trial and State Department's like negotiating all this and it, it, the guy comes in from the State Department at the Simpsons house and he's like you know unfortunately this comes at like the worst time for you know uh, American-Australian relations <laughs> and he talks about like the short-lived fascination with Australian culture that came from the Crocodile Dundee movies you know and the you know, <laughs> kangaroos and didgeridoos and all that kind of stuff. it's just funny because it's like u.s australia like it's a it's an odd it's an odd relationship you know it's sort of like they're they're clearly an ally they have been for a long time but then you read this new york times article and they're like oh australia is trying to choose is it gonna go with china or go with the u.s really really like that's that's the <laughs> argument like oh they were trying to choose like which side to go with you know australia never gonna cozy up to china come on anyway
1: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplan. I'm an assistant professor of government at William and Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey Marcus, how you doing?
0: Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Hi, everybody listening to this. I hope everybody's doing well.
1: So now we have about eight months of a Biden foreign policy. So give me your kind of initial take. How is how are things going for the Biden administration when it comes to U.S. foreign policy? What are the new challenges they're facing? What are you what are you thinking about?
0: Well, that's a great question. I mean, I I think one of the things we mentioned last time when we spoke about this was that Biden was entering uh, a very complicated international environment. Right. And so there's a there's a laundry list of of challenges. Um, I think, you know, the rise of China, the status of Taiwan. Covid obviously is a is still a huge uh, deal internationally. Um, more generally, we have the sort of rise of of so called great power politics. The the idea basically that you know we're we're seemingly back in a world of of sort of you know Russia versus the United States versus China versus maybe a couple other states, but basically sort of trying to duke it out for for a top position in the international system, or at the very least not retreat from the position that they had. And I think the two things that have happened uh, in my mind that are incredibly important are one, the, the summit that uh, Biden had with Putin in Geneva a few months ago. And then I think obviously uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal um, has been a major focus of attention over the last month or so, rightly so. One of the points that I made last season was that uh, we have a situation with Russia uh, from the United States' perspective, and I think they would argue the same, of something of a trust deficit. Right I mean, I think one of the ways to characterize la- the relationship between the United States and Russia is high levels of uncertainty about the intentions of, of the other side. At the end of the day, it's just very difficult for, for the United States to know really what what is driving Putin. He's got domestic problems, he's got his own legitimacy he has to worry about. Uh, and internationally, he seems to be sort of a thorn in the side of the United States a lot of the time, right? I think there's this, this sense in Washington um, among some people that Putin likes to, to you know, be a, a problem for the United States. So whether it's, you know election, uh, meddling whether it's you know dealing with with uh, ukraine and and the fate of Eastern Europe, basically everywhere we turn we see Russia doing something that the United States doesn't really like and so the question becomes well what do we what do we do about that and Biden has been very i think forceful on the idea that diplomacy is going to be the thing that that helps us you know regain a little bit of understanding of of what russia is up to and so whenever you have these summits that are announced, like the one that took place in Geneva. Uh, you have this sort of knee-jerk reaction by a lot of people of suggesting this is a bad idea, right? And it's a bad idea because, you know, Putin has a history of not living up to the things that he promises. It's a bad idea because the, the relationship between Russia and the United States is poor. And so therefore, why would you want to have a summit with a, an adversary, essentially? And there's lots of legitimate you know reasons why people are skeptical of summits, which is, which is fine, and diplomacy more generally. But I think in this particular case, Biden was right in his feeling that we need to engage with the Russians, right? So not not sort of sitting back and just saying, you know, well they're the they're the enemy, they're the adversary, they're the challenger, they're the country that you know sort of the thorn in our side, uh, and we can we can deal with them through deterrence or or whatever. His intuition is that I need to sit down with with Putin and and see what happens, and if it develops a poor relationship, it develops a poor relationship. If it helps, then it then it helps. And so I was actually quite uh, heartened by by the summit that took place. I think that it it went well. Um, I think it did what Biden needed it to do. Uh, and the question is going to be whether anything comes of it, right? So so Biden in his press conference after the summit said, let's see if Putin lives up to the things that he said he was going to do. And we'll give it six months and, and see what happens. And so I have a, a calendar uh, note in my Google calendar to look six months from the summit to see how things stand. And we'll we'll be able to go back and see whether or not there's been any progress at all. But I think they did the right thing by meeting. I think Biden did the right thing by reaching out to Putin. And so I was happy to... To see that
1: I think it's shocking that diplomacy is the thing you come back to here <laughs> as the key factor in u s how the u s deals with russia. you said that you thought the summit went well how, how, how so How would you know if the summit went well versus it didn't go well
0: well first of all jeff you know it's 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 almost as if we see the world through uh, particular lenses and we bring our uh understanding and our and our values uh and our beliefs to the table and that's how we see things, right? And so I think you're right. It's pretty it's probably unsurprising that I see diplomacy as the important uh part of this relationship. Why why do I think it went well? First, first of all, it happened, right? So one of the things that's interesting about, about diplomacy is that summits are kind of tricky to to pull off because neither side wants to go into a summit uh and have it fail, right? Because they'll get blamed and they'll and they'll you know you think about Trump and Kim People look at, at Trump's overtures towards uh, North Korea and they say this is a big failure. Why was it a failure? Because those summit didn't lead to anything, right? And so you don't want that to happen. And so this the, to going to a summit and actually carrying through and, and having it is, is quite risky. And I think for Biden in particular, there's a lot of domestic costs that, that he had to, to pay there because there's plenty of people in the United States that are incredibly skeptical of Russia uh, and they don't think we should be meeting with them. We don't think we should be dealing with Putin because he's a thug and he's a liar and he's not trustworthy and all that. So I think the mere fact that it happened is actually indicative of, of something positive, which is that both sides are willing to sit down and talk. Now, the way that it played out, and I was, I was glued to the television. This, I was watching CNN all day. And it's true that you, you, you only get sort of bits and pieces from the press, and you only see certain shots and things like that. And by the way, as I think we said last season, uh, and we'll say it again now, one of the most annoying things about studying diplomacy is that there's very little you can actually learn in the present so my, my sort of stock answer as to what happened in the summit is, is something along the lines of, I'll tell you in 40 years, once all this stuff is declassified, we are just now getting the declassified Soviet uh, archival information that, that goes back to the Cold War. So it takes a long time to be able to access the stuff that's happening behind the scenes, the sort of backstage type of stuff. Uh, so I, I grant you that we can't really have a lot of good uh, information about what actually happened, and we won't for some time. But the fact that it seems like both sides coming out of that summit did not make insults of the other side, did not have anything negative to say about the other side, were very positive, to me is a very good sign, right? It shows that they had something of a rapport. They were able to to sit down with one another and not not have it devolve. And by the way, we've seen summits with Russia, or at least the Soviet Union, go very poorly from the United States' perspective. Vienna in 1961 is a great example where, where Kennedy just got his, his butt kicked by Khrushchev. He comes out of the summit and says, I got my butt kicked and we're in big trouble. So I think that if you compare what happened with Biden and Putin to that, for example, it was, it was a big success. Now, again, we won't know for some time what the effects of this are. We'll have to wait and see. But as far as I can tell, everything is, everything's great with that, that uh, initial kind of summitry. And I think, it, I think it bodes well for the future. I'll say that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you that we don't know and won't know for a while. And that's why I'm, I want to push on the, well, it seemed to go well kind of take, because the optics of the summit, the were they openly insulting each other? Did anyone storm off? That that kind of thing, I think, is not a great measure of whether there was uh, success. If we define success as achieving like concrete goals that, um, you know, reduce tensions between these countries or whatever else we're trying to get out of the summit. And we've seen other meetings that are happening around this time between uh, Biden, senior Biden administration officials and, say, Chinese leadership that did have this feeling of things are not going well, that they're kind of sniping at each other, that people are storming off, that things are being canceled. And it's tempting to say, well, those aren't going well. And this other summit did go well. But I have no idea. And I don't think that we are going to know uh, for some time, because that's not the way we should measure these things. And, and so mm-hmm. I think there's a real tendency to have these knee-jerk reactions to these kinds of diplomatic meetings based on atmospherics, when that's really not the part of the story that we should generally be paying attention
0: to. I think that's fair. I mean, wh- one thing to think about, though, is that we have recent examples where just watching on television told you that things didn't go well, right? So Hel- Helsinki with Trump and, and, and Putin, for example, I watched that on CNN and I, and I came away thinking this did not go well. You know, this was, this was bad. And I think the history shows that that actually is true. Like that was not a great summit uh, for Trump. I think it was actually an okay one for, for Putin, uh, but it didn't go particularly well for, for Trump. And I think that uh, we could sense that. And some of the things that people around the administration were writing uh, suggested that that was, that was the case. The the overarching sense that I get from uh, people that are, were around this meeting with with Putin was that this was actually you know so the one thing to think about Putin, Biden is that he's a seasoned veteran of this type of thing he's been doing this sort of interpersonal diplomacy for a very long time he's 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 talked about it for a long time this isn't his first rodeo and I think that we can we can read some something into the signals that he sends and the people that are around him send when they talk about about the meeting. Because I think actually, if it didn't go well, I think he would be happy to say that. you know I think he would say, you know we actually disagreed about a lot. Uh, I don't get the sense that Putin wants to do uh much with respect to election meddling or whatever. I don't get the sense that Biden is the type of guy who's going to sort of uh placate uh Putin in the same way that Trump did, for example. And so I think that some of those things that that we might dismiss, and, and you know there's some reasons to dismiss them, of course can be indicative of of uh, something about the meaning and the relationship. And so I'm, I'm optimistic for, for that reason. But this is tricky because we're talking about international politics in the present. you know. And one of the things that that we do as scholars oftentimes is we look at historical cases precisely because we have more uh, information available to us and we can kind of piece together what happened a little bit more clearly. So I grant you, we don't really know what's going to happen here. But th- from this observer's perspective, this was actually a, a positive.
1: Great. I'm glad, right, I'm glad well, we spent 20 great. minutes on a, a summit. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I, I'll just renew my objection. <laughs> well, uh, no, I want to renew my objection to thinking that two people sitting down and, and having a chat is something we should care about. L- like, right. like if, if, the, if the Biden administration wanted to say something to Russia, this is not necessarily the most efficient nor the most effective way to do so. And I I, like I understand you love the face to face stuff and like you're really into that. But this is all theatrics. People are talking to domestic audiences by holding these things. It doesn't mean like I don't know, even if even if President Biden had looked deep into his eyes, seen his soul, Marcus. I would I would not be convinced that this was uh, this meant anything, really. But you know what? I, I guess we'll uh, agree to disagree on this one. Jeffrey,
0: Jeffrey, Jeffrey. Let me just let me finish with one one point. Right? What you say is very reasonable and rational, and I think a lot of people would would agree with you. But I think what's important to understand about about diplomacy is that what the the value really comes in understanding how we can change relationships. Right? So if you think back to the Cold War, and I know my students oftentimes roll their eyes when I talk about the Cold War because it's having such a long time ago and it's the 1980s, and 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 they don't want to hear it. But I do think it's instructive. This was a time where both the United States and the Soviet Union really did see the other side as the enemy. I dare say the relationship between the United States and Soviet Union was way worse, actually, than the current situation we find ourselves in with with Russia. And yet, in that environment, Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan were able to get together. And what they understood was, if I could just talk to this guy and explain myself and explain that we don't have... The intention to nuke you, and the other side can say, We don't have the intention to nuke you. I don't know what all this fuss is about. That you could start to develop some understanding. And that's exactly what happened when they met in 1985 in Geneva. It was the first time that Gorbachev looked at Reagan and said, You know what? I don't agree with anything that you're telling me right now. I actually disagree with most of it. But I can see that you're actually sincere, and I believe that you believe what you're saying. And so, they walked into that meeting being very unsure about the other side, and yet being able to sit down with the the adversary and talk to them and and explain themselves and see what they were all about at a human level, Jeff, one way to think about politics is in the way that you do, which is very sort of you know uh, material focused it's nuclear weapons, it's things that go boom it's you know these big things in the world that are that are uh, explosive and 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 atomistic right but politics is also personal. It's human. And so the ability to, to humanize your enemy and understand your enemy at a human level, I think it cannot be, the importance of that cannot be overstated. All right. <laughs> that was really eloquent. Yeah. Well done. I'm happy that I, am happy that I did that. That was yeah. great.
1: No, that was Full-throated good. Full-throated
0: defensive diplomacy. No,
1: I almost woke up there for a second. Then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just two last thoughts on this, Jeff. Um, I think one one point to consider is that even if you're skeptical of diplomacy and skeptical of summits and you're skeptical that uh, they can accomplish anything – I think the question you have to ask yourselves is, is what is the alternative, right? I, I would prefer to live in a world where leaders get together and they talk and they try to develop understanding and they try to make the, the world a better place and reduce some of the tensions and re, reassure each other because um, I don't think there's a great alternative. You know, you might say, well, deterrence works and we can we can do sort of, you know, things with with weapons and that can prevent attacks and things like that. That makes me scared. I'd much rather take the risks of, of failed diplomacy. Uh, than, than not talking, so that's that's what I would would say about that. And then the second puzzle or the second point I want to make is I think a puzzle what, what, that's
1: interesting. What, 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 <laughs> no, stop. What? Oh. You'd rather have people talking than not talking. Is that what you're is that what you're trying to say? That I mean, that's what that's what I'm trying to say. Way to get out on a limb there, Marcus. I mean, what? what <laughs> well,
0: a lot of people I think would argue that the the what is the name of this 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 uh, podcast? Horticultural homies. Oh no, cheap talk. Cheap talk. So a lot of people would argue, uh, maybe rightly so, that actually what these these leaders are doing is is basically uh, exchanging various forms of cheap talk. Maybe some are like more cheap than others, you know. But it's it's all cheap, right? And so if, if you're dealing, dealing in a cheap talk world, their deception uh, becomes easy, right? Or or the flip side of that, it's difficult to convey your sincerity. And so you might think actually that this is very dangerous because you're in a world where maybe you know a leaders rely on on what's what's said in these these meetings. And if it ends up being cheap talk and it's easy to, to defect on it or renege on the deal or whatever, then then you're gonna you're gonna be upset. I mean one of the things that, that people really did not like about Trump trying to engage with Kim was this idea that number one, whatever kind of comes out of the summit's gonna be meaningless for for reasons that a lot of people I think would would agree with, which is like this is cheap talk and neither side is necessarily going to live up to their bargain. But it can make matters worse if the relationship doesn't go in a positive direction. So if if Kim ends up blaming Trump for a failed summit, let's say, or Kim perceives Trump is trying to pull the wool over his eyes, or something like that, this can actually be quite dangerous. So I'm I'm actually not convinced that the argument that it's better to talk uh, uh, is all that straightforward. I think a lot of people would argue, in many instances, it's better not to talk. And this is this is why you know the, the, there's summit skepticism. You know, you say, what do we what are we trying to accomplish here? Why are we having this summit? Why are we why are we doing this when the dangers? The, the costs of doing so might actually be relatively high. My second point, uh, and I think that this is a puzzle that I want to pose to my students, let's assume all these criticisms of diplomacy are, are correct. You know, it's cheap talk, summits are meaningless, they're photo ops, etc. Why do leaders continue to engage in this practice, right? It might be that they're completely naive, leaders are just dumb, and they think that what they're doing is making a difference, and it's, it's really not. Political scientists know better. But it strikes me, it's also possible that political scientists are just wrong. And so the ones that are, that are talking about diplomacy as being irrelevant or dangerous or cheap talk actually are missing the point and that leaders have something to tell us. And so the question I want to pose for my students that are listening to this is, what, how do we resolve this puzzle? What is, what is going on here? Who is right? Are leaders right to continue these, these practices of meeting with each other and taking interpersonal relationships seriously? Or are the political scientists right to point out the futility of these interactions?
1: I think those are good points you raise. For my students, I'd say, don't worry about that. We're not going to talk about that ever.
0: The other, the other point, just one last thing. Um, we're talking about the rationalist um, uh, bargaining model of, of war on Thursday. And I'm going to tell my students, I don't care what you remember of this. But when Jeffrey Kaplow on a survey asks you at the <laughs> beginning of the semester, if you've heard of this thing, please, for the love of God, remember my name, Holmes, and that the answer is yes, you have heard of it. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to explain it. You don't need to to, to map out what the bargaining range is, and all. No, it doesn't matter. Just say yes, I've heard of it. And if somebody asks you on that same survey how many nuclear weapon states there are, it's in the realm of like nine, you know, plus or minus, depending on 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 who we're counting. But it's not a hundred, and it's certainly not a thousand, and it's not zero. So just a couple of things to
1: Marcus, you're you're killing the validity of my of my survey here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly great exactly All right. right well
1: um now i'm gonna have to now i need a new survey instrument so <laughs> excellent okay so um i think you know this this talk of summit diplomacy brings to mind some other diplomatic stuff that's been been going on in the news the last couple of weeks so i don't know about you man but i would like to talk about nuclear submarines
0: you want to talk about uh, AUKUS. AUKUS? Uh, AUKUS? 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 acus So if France was in this, instead of Australia, it'd be fuck us?
1: Something like that, yes. Okay. Um, okay. Which maybe is one reason they excluded France.
0: That might be the only reason.
1: So let me just do a little bit of background explaining here for those who aren't following the story as closely as I am. Jeff,
0: treat me like I'm a five-year-old. There's nothing about this. Tell me what's going on.
1: So the recent news about this is that the US and the UK announced an agreement uh, with Australia to kind of strengthen the... Um, defense relationship between these countries, and as part of that agreement, the U.S. and the U.K. have agreed to provide nuclear-powered submarines to Australia, and this is big news for for a number of reasons. We we can we can talk about one reason it's diplomatic news is that the uh, French and the France and Australia had previously had an agreement for France to provide conventionally powered submarines to uh, Australia. And this was part of a French initiative to strengthen its relationship with Australia and, in fact, have like a a stronger presence in kind of the greater Asia-Pacific region. And so France did not like that the U.S. and the U.K. had made this announcement and they were very unhappy with uh, all three partners here. So some diplomatic hilarity ensued. Um, There was a gala that was canceled.
0: That's a big, you know... When you cancel galas,
1: that's a big deal. I I have questions about holding a gala at the moment anyway, but, you know, I think the real victims in this are the gala goers, right, who will not not be able to attend the gala that the French had had planned in uh, Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. to celebrate the U.S.-French strategic relationship, which now is not, like— Uh, on very firm ground. There um, was a recall of ambassadors from these countries by the French. French are upset. And I think just today, as we're recording this, President Biden had a discussion with uh, Macron Mm. of France. And uh, I'm not sure I've yet seen a readout of of how that went. But I haven't either. But but clearly, this is a big kind of diplomatic problem between France and uh, the US, UK and Australia. It also represents um, a kind of change of trajectory for the u.s relationship with australia and it's it's a, a big deal for the uk which is kind of implementing a new strategy post brexit where it's reaching out uh, on its own to countries um, more more globally so it, it has a lot of ramifications for all of these countries beyond the french being upset at um australia breaking its deal with them to provide to provide um submarines so so that's kind of the, the backdrop of the story. So there, there are some, some diplomatic consequences of this in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and France, um, the relationship between Australia and France, and kind of the, the broader relationship between these allies, and they're still allies. For the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia, the outcome here is the creation of kind of another allied grouping, um, which we're calling AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S. Um, is the acronym. And this is a group of states that together have common goals in in the Asia-Pacific region generally. So I want to talk a little bit about this, because I think the news coverage of it has focused a lot on how annoyed France is, and maybe less on what a big deal this is from a U.S. policy perspective, because it really does represent a very significant change in how the U.S. government, and particularly U.S. government under a Democrat, has approached issues of nuclear proliferation, which is what's under the surface here. So what this boils down to, Marcus, is a decision about which is the most important strategic priority at this point for the United States. Is it countering China or is it strengthening the international institutions that underlie efforts to prevent nuclear proliferation? And the decision that was made here that countering China's rise trumps or is more important than the the kind of long-term health of the nuclear non-proliferation system is one that has been made in the past, but not traditionally by Democratic presidents. And so if you are watching foreign policy Twitter or uh, the op-ed pages of various, um, various outlets, uh, folks who do nuclear non-proliferation are completely freaking out about this deal. That's because the same technology that allows Countries to develop nuclear propulsion systems for submarines is the technology that countries would use to produce material for nuclear weapons. Right? This, this is a dual-use technology that can be used for both um, nuclear weapons and other purposes. And so uh, by providing nuclear submarine technology to Australia, and it seems clear, I should say, that the US is unlikely to provide technology to Australia, they're more likely to provide. Finished uh, submarine propulsion systems to Australia, rather than like teaching them how to build this stuff. But by providing this nuclear technology abroad, it threatens to set a precedent that would lead to the spread of nuclear technology elsewhere. Nuclear propulsion technology, the the nuclear power systems that run nuclear submarines, is kind of a sensitive subject within the nuclear nonproliferation community because there is a loophole in the nuclear nonproliferation regime. That's the the treaty that a bunch of countries have signed that obligates them not to develop nuclear weapons. And this loophole is that if the country says that it is using nuclear material for nuclear submarine purposes, well, then the international community has no right to inspect it. So there's an international organization called the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, and their job is to verify that nuclear material all over the world is being used for civilian purposes, not for nuclear weapons purposes. And all a country has to do, say Iran, all Iran has to do if it wants to remove its nuclear material from the gaze of the IAEA is to say, hey, we're using this material actually for a nuclear submarine, so you can't look at it. And this loophole has been in the the non-proliferation treaty from the beginning. It has never been exercised. And uh, countries have worried a lot about it to the point that the U.S. has gone to great lengths to prevent countries from sharing nuclear submarine technology with countries that don't already have it. But the idea that if this technology spreads, it provides an excuse for countries to take nuclear material outside of international verification measures. And so it's something that the nonproliferation folks worry a lot about. Not that they're worried about Australia, right? I mean, I feel pretty comfortable that Australia isn't likely to develop a nuclear weapon. They had nuclear ambitions many years ago and gave those up and are now kind of a big proponent of nuclear non-proliferation. That's the prevention of nuclear weapons spread around the world. Um, So I'm not too worried about Australia misusing nuclear material. The worry is that by selling nuclear submarines to another country, the US weakens this norm against um, selling this technology and provides an opening for other countries to do so. So um, Brazil is seeking nuclear submarine technology. Iran might say, hey, I'd like to buy some nuclear submarine technology from China or Russia. And in doing so, it would be a a really worrisome step because it would allow countries that acquire this technology to take material outside of verification measures measures. Can you explain
0: what a nuclear submarine is and how it's different than a conventional submarine?
1: So uh, nuclear submarines are powered by a small nuclear reactor that is in the submarine, okay? And there are some potential benefits of powering your, your submarine with a nuclear reactor rather than with the conventional power system, right? And that includes the ability to stay underwater longer. And uh, and that's a big deal in a submarine, right? You don't want to have to surface frequently and it provides fuel. You don't have to worry about refueling. Um, so there, there are all kinds of, of potential benefits for nuclear submarines. Now, whether those benefits are worth the additional cost of, a, of putting a small nuclear reactor in your submarine and running it underwater, um, well, that, that's, a, that's a question that's, that's worth asking, I think. One issue here is that the kind of Nuclear material used in US nuclear submarines is weapons grade uranium. It's the same stuff you would throw into a, a nuclear weapon um, if you wanted to make one. And so, giving that away, give, creating a nuclear reactor that runs on weapons grade uranium and um, providing that to another country is a potential proliferation risk because that's like material you could just use for a weapon if you decided to do so. Other countries have developed and committed to developing. Uh, nuclear propulsion systems that use low enriched uranium, which is a little bit safer. And um, it's, you know, it, it hasn't been announced, like what kind of nuclear propulsion systems will be provided here, but it's probably going to be the kind that the US uses it in its reactors, which is um, highly enriched uranium.
0: That's helpful. One other clarification question, I think that would be uh, useful to get on the table. Do we know why Australia uh, made this decision? So is it is it that for example, the deal with France uh, was too expensive and taking too long, uh, or alternately, have we do we understand that their sort of um, strategic goals have changed, and so there's a there's a real reason why they wanted this nuclear uh, technology from the United States, um, or is it just you know serendipitous that you know the Americans and the Australians happen to be having a conversation one day and it, it came to light that you know maybe the U.S. could sell this this submarine to them and they they like that idea? Do we have a, we have a sense of what's driving? The, this decision on the Australian side
1: yeah I, well, I think it's all three uh, options you mentioned and there there's a New York good New York Times piece that kind of goes through where Australia is in its in terms of its strategic posture toward China and this decision that Australia seems to have made um that it's going to not try to not try to be friends with everyone that it's going to pick a side and it's going to um posture itself to push back against the growth of Chinese power in the, in the broader region where it wasn't always clear that that would be the direction that Australia decided to take. So I think this deal is part of that effort to take it, take a tougher line and, and um, confront China a little more directly than had been planned previously. Also the, the French submarine deal was not going well. They were having problems providing the, the submarines. It's not unexpected. It's, building a submarine is like not a small thing. So um I, I think that's not necessarily the the major factor, but there was definitely some issues. And then the fact that the U.S. was willing to put nuclear submarines on the table, whereas France was providing conventional submarines, like the nuclear submarines are better. Right. And so it, it makes sense that Australia would be interested in, in making that deal. Um, so I think I think it's probably all of that.
0: But it's not your sense that the United States, for example, tried to strong arm Australia into making this deal. That this was this was something that because one could have a situation where the United States is looking at you know Asia Pacific, Australia, as you mentioned for a while, seemed like they were kind of trying to play both sides. Although recently with China, things have gotten worse uh, in the, you know the South China Sea and stuff, and you know Australia is kind of nervous about that whole. But you can see the situation where the United States is, is trying to force Australia's hand and say, well, you know, wait a second, are you with us or are you against us? Are you going to be with China or are you going to be with us? It, so your sense isn't that the United States sort of forced Australia to do this. This was sort of their their decision-making process, and it, it really is kind of about balancing against against China.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that that's not my sense, but that doesn't mean that that's not, that's not what happened. I would be surprised if the U.S. said, we're going to torpedo this to... <laughs> To Pardon the pun. We're going to we're going to torpedo this deal with France um, kind of solely to make sure that Australia was taking a a tougher line against China. There are ways that that the U.S. could have aligned itself with with Australia that would not have uh, had the same ramifications for French efforts to involve itself in the region. So I think the way this was done is more along the lines of like, here's an incentive we can provide to Australia um, to kind of help move it along in the right direction here. Because this is something we can give that that France necessarily can't necessarily do, you know, and, and for, for France, the, the U.S.-French relationship is, is interesting here, too, because France has been trying to move, you know, kind of away from from the U.S. in terms of uh, how, how tightly coordinated our policy was toward the Asia Pacific region. And this is part of the EU's kind of general push to to not antagonize China. Right and and the U.S. seems to be taking a harder line toward China, and so we've seen some divergence in the the views of the U.S. and the EU, and the UK seems to be more in line with the U.S. position on this and taking a tougher line against China's rise.
0: It's interesting. You started this conversation, I think, interestingly talking about domestic politics, which is you know the Iraq War, of course, happened under Republican administration, and it was sort of this idea that uh, oh, the French, you know, not, they don't have our back; they're not they're not really one of our allies, and everything. Coupled with. Now we have the situation where the United States appears to be being more aggressive towards China, uh, because we haven't yet talked about how China is going to respond to all this, but we can talk about that in a second. But seemingly, it, it, if I'm China, I don't love this move, right? This seems to be more an ag- of an aggressive sort of balancing act by the United States. Uh, and it's happening under Biden, which is which I think is interesting. So so how do you see the the party uh, in, the, in the domestic context of the United States being relevant to this?
1: Historically, Democratic presidents have been, administrations, have been more concerned with with the maintenance of international organizations that the U.S. has a strong stance in. You know, there's been more of a democratic foreign policy establishment belief in the efficacy of international organizations for achieving U.S. goals in the world. And Republican presidents, particularly in the the 2000s onward, um, have been Less committed to those organizations as a tool for US power and more about, you know, kind of direct application of US pressure, direct application of US power abroad. And so when you think about commitment to something like the nuclear nonproliferation regime, the set of international organizations that deal with nuclear proliferation, it seems like Democratic presidents have had more of a commitment to these things over the years. And the last kind of example of this kind of a tradeoff being made was under the George W. Bush administration when the the W. administration came up with a plan to improve relations with India by kind of legitimizing their nuclear weapons effort. And this was seen as a big blow against the nuclear nonproliferation regime at the time because, you know, India had tested nuclear weapons. It was not allowed to do that um, under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which it had never signed, right? And so the uh, Non-Proliferation establishment wanted to say, hey, um, we can't make a civilian nuclear deal with this country because we're kind of rewarding it for not abiding by the rules, right, for staying outside of this treaty that we think is really important. And the Bush administration said, our relationship with India, as a counter to China, is actually more important than this kind of idea of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty, this kind of fuzzy efficacy of an international organization concept. And this trade-off is a really tricky one for, for policymakers, because on the one hand, you have kind of an immediate, strategic, hard power kind of a threat. And on the other hand, you have a kind of vague, fuzzy idea of an international norm or an international institution that you're worried about, like, the strengthening of over the years, right? And so it's really tricky, I think, for for policymakers to say, you know, what I'm going to choose this this long term play uh, on this kind of vague issue over this near term, very tangible threat that I can see.
0: All right, so Jeff, let me play devil's advocate for a second. I, I, you know, you're an NPT guy, and I understand you and your friends are NPT people, and so you see everything through the lens of the NPT. But Can I just interpret this as having nothing to do at all with the NPT? So first of all, you admitted we're not worried about Australia becoming a nuclear-powered state, right? So for the NPT to be involved here, we have to have some concern about Australia potentially uh, getting a nuclear weapon, which would be in violation of the NPT. If we're not worried about that, then then it doesn't go anywhere. Second, you said that there's a loophole – uh, and so, as a technical matter, they are ke- in keeping with the NPT. So the Biden administration is saying we're we're doing exactly what the NPT says we should do. There's no problem here. We have this we have loophole. Now maybe the, sh- the loophole shouldn't exist, but you know that it, it does. And so therefore, uh, uh, you know we, we're in keeping with it. And then I guess last, I mean, my intuition is that in looking at the the sort of overall structure of this whole thing. I would be surprised if the NPT and, and you know we, we talk about sort of people in Biden's administration, but let's just talk about Biden himself. I would be a little surprised if the NPT came into Biden's thinking at all on this this subject matter. Seems to me this is all about balancing against China and the the potential spread of nuclear weapons because of this nuclear submarine deal. Uh, and how that might affect the NPT down the road. And i I would my intuition says that that's probably the furthest thing from Biden's mind when he's when he's thinking about this decision. So what you know, convince me that this has something to do with the NPT?
1: Well, I think ultimately the decision isn't about the NPT, and that's why he made the decision he made. I think he absolutely was briefed on the potential impact of this on limiting the spread of nuclear weapons and missiles, I should say, in the future because these these submarines are coming with missiles. Um, not nuclear missiles, uh, conventional missiles, cruise missiles. But the cruise missiles that we're providing are the kind you're not supposed to provide under another international institution, the Missile Technology Control Regime. So, like this, this deal is a, a deal that is not great for norms that limit the spread of weapons uh, to other countries. And 100, um, percent somebody told him this, right? This is this is like something that would have been debated at very high levels you know is the 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 trade off here worth it and ultimately the the decision was yeah it, like we we need to take short term action to kind of cement this alliance with australia we're already allies but this like you know puts uh, australia um, pushes them forward in terms of potentially standing up against china and helping us in that effort and, um, you know, for that reason, it's more important than these other kinds of long-term considerations. But the, the idea that, like, you wouldn't have considered this aspect of it, I think, is uh, implausible. Now, would he have considered French hurt feelings? That, I'm not so sure, right? I, I mean, I think there is a possibility here that the U.S. misestimated the level of French angst that would come from this decision.
0: I mean, that, that's completely how I interpreted the, the situation. I was telling my students the other day, I think if there was a mistake that was made, um, it was probably, and again, we won't know the real answers for some time. But it seems to be the case that the the mistake here was not managing the expectations of France, you know. And and when your uh, defense minister is saying, I think it was a defense minister, the the Americans stabbed us in the back. I mean, that, that's an ally saying that about the United States. Now you could say you know, this is just all show. This is theatrics. They, were, they, were, they, they didn't like that the deal got squashed and it's, it's a lot of money on the line and all that kind of stuff. And they were just kind of being a little bit dramatic about the whole thing. But I do, I do think that it's, it, it, the, the optics of this are not great for the Biden administration and, and more per, you know, particularly the State Department, who, you know, they're, part of their job is to make sure things like this don't happen. You got to manage allies and adversaries, right? And, and you think usually that managing the allies is easier. Uh, but the expectations here i don't think were managed particularly well and it, it will be fascinating when the story is written um about what what france was told if anything i mean it's possible they knew this was coming uh that there was diplomacy and despite that they decided to go public with their their consternation
1: yeah well there was there were some stories written about how like the the us was being very the us uk and australia were being very careful not to let any word of this leak out to so the French, because they want the deal know. to go through, yeah. right? But like you know, that's kind of a bad look if, if you right. know if the worry is managing the relationship. But but I think in the in the long term, the the upshot of this has the more important thing is the what this does for the U.S.-China relationship, the Australia-China relationship, the U.S.-France relationship. I'm less concerned about, frankly, um, and it's not just that I don't think France is as important a player here. It's just that I think ultimately the strategic interests of these countries align very closely. And, you know, a little bit of, of hurt feelings over a defense contract that doesn't go through are not going to derail that for for the long term. So let's
0: talk about uh, China for a second. So you alluded to this, you know, how this affects the US-China relationship is one of the uh, the big questions that comes out of this, and I would completely agree. And it, it's interesting, because a lot of times with China, we, we talk about things like, you know, what's referred to as like soft balancing, right? It's sort of like, yeah, you do these things on the margins, or you try to use your soft power or whatever, uh, to, to counteract some of the narratives that China pushes, and, you know, some of the, the initiatives that they take in, in Africa and elsewhere. Uh, but it's, it's usually things that are sort of like on the margins of, of security, right? It's kind of like you want to you want to make sure that China doesn't do too much in the international system. And so you try to make it difficult for them to do what they're trying to do. This appears to me anyway to be just the, the almost the opposite of that, where it's just a full-on uh, statement in a very material capability sense uh, that the United States and Australia and the UK – are very much interested in making it clear to China that we're trying to balance uh, against you and you're going to you're going to grow and you're going to continue to grow and you're continue to do things in the South China Sea. And But that that comes at a time when if you read the paper every morning, you, you see that there's a lot of worry over Taiwan. You know, there's a lot of worry about, um, you know, what China's doing, the South China Sea and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Biden in his speech at the UN did not talk about China by name. As an outsider you know, person looking in who's, who's not looking at this necessarily from the nuclear submarine perspective, but just as a general security issue, um, it looks a little scary. You know, it looks a little sort of Cold War-ish. It looks a little security dilemma-ish. It looks like this could get out of hand. Um, and when you have something like Taiwan, in the middle of all of it, that's very scary. So I don't know. Should we should we be pessimistic about U.S.-China relations as a result of this this deal, or what does this tell us about U.S.-China relations?
1: I don't know if we should be pessimistic because of this deal, or whether our pre-existing pessimism is leads to the deal like this. Right? I mean, I, I I'm not sure this tells us much new about the about the ongoing relationship between U.S. and China. It does, I think, tell us something about the us ability to bring allies in line with us views on how to confront china going forward which has been a struggle that the us has been engaging in right i mean like this is not what well, the us has been trying to get its allies to take a, to stand with it in taking a firmer line against china and um with not great success frankly over the last several years and so i think it, you know this is the biden administration saying We'll, we'll we'll pay to do it then right like i mean this is a a way to get australia on board with with our view um and this is, i i shouldn't say like this isn't a bribe i mean australia was trending in that direction anyway right and it seems clear had made the strategic decision that it wanted to take a tougher line and throw in its lot with the us as opposed to china right and this is just kind of a bonus but it really does kind of cement that relationship in a in a tangible material way as you said we talked last week about the role of precedent in, in uh, international relations does withdrawing from Afghanistan um, set, a, set a precedent that other countries are going to now interpret in a particular way. And so the precedent-setting nature of Afghanistan um, means that we shouldn't have done it, right? That, that we should have because we were worried about setting this precedent going forward. And I think this is like a, a repeated theme in some of what we talk about where it's really hard to know we should be maybe a little skeptical of arguments that rely on, oh, a precedent has been set, our reputation has been damaged, or, or what or what have you. So in the context of the non-proliferation world, the precedent set by the U.S. providing nuclear submarines to another country, you know, is that going to really make it easier for other countries to get away with this stuff and, and avoid scrutiny for it? There's also this question of, like, can countries get away with hypo- uh, hypocritical behavior, right? Can the U.S. still condemn France for providing nuclear submarine technology to Brazil, if the U.S. is willing to provide it to Australia, and this is a tricky question. And like the U.S. wants to be able to kind of exert some kind of pressure on other countries to to toe the line on these restrictions. And does violating the restrictions itself uh, make that a harder job? And I mean, I think the answer is yeah, it makes it harder diplomatically. But the U.S. still has tools at its at its disposal to to do that. I mean, what do you think, Mark? Is this something that that matters in international affairs at all. Like, I mean, hypocrisy is is uh endemic in the international system, right? It's everywhere. Countries don't, you know, behave the way they want others to behave. Is that a problem? Is that a diplomatic problem? Does that make the US case harder for persuading others to abide by these kind of fuzzy restrictions?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. It's and it's it's a very deep question because one of the the things that we touched on last time, I think, is that it's it's difficult to know who or what precedent, credibility, reputation, resolve, who this all attaches to. So one of the things that you started this conversation, uh, I think rightly pointing out was that this is interesting because it's Biden, it's a Democrat who's doing this, right? And my my view, as as I'm sure you know, is I tend to take sort of an individual level uh, look at a lot of this, this type of behavior. So I think what leaders around the world are thinking to themselves is not so much that the United States uh, has set... Some precedent that 's going to be relevant for us in you know five years or ten years, necessarily, some of them might think that, but I think a lot of it attaches to to the the leader who makes that decision, so I think one of the reasons this is so interesting to to you and me is that it was Biden who made this this uh, move, and that 's surprising to a certain extent. Your argument is because of the npt i think it's a little bit surprising because it 's so uh, uh, sort of fully frontal to China. But it's a it's an individual-level thing that we attach. The importance is at, the, is at that individual level. If Kamala Harris becomes the next uh, president or Trump becomes president again, I think things change considerably. So I don't think it really attaches to the U.S. I think it attaches to to the leader. Now, the, the second question, though, is does this hurt the arguments that the United States can make? I think that is definitely the case. So I think it does become harder um, when the United States is trying to do the right thing and, and, and pursue diplomacy and try to make arguments for why, you know, uh, the UK should not be doing this or, or France should not be doing this or, or anybody should be doing something when uh, the, the country in turn just says, well, you, you have this behavior. I mean, this is one of the things that China always says about the United States. It's like you talk about, you know, human rights abuses, you talk about uh, democracy, and then they look at the January 6th insurrection, for example. The, the the question is sort of like what does this do to the our ability to talk and our ability to make arguments? And I think it I think there it definitely does does make things harder. If if only because it becomes more awkward. It's not that like power is irrelevant. It's not that at the end of the day, the United States has the ability to uh do whatever it's gonna do anyway, but part of it is is Managing the relationships with countries and knowing them, knowing that we're going to do what we want, us knowing that we're going to do what we want. How does that play out? And what are the sort of arguments that are made on on both sides? There's a um, uh, a philosopher that some people might have heard of, Habermas, who has this idea of communicative action, where basically the the idea is that you know you you want these these sort of good faith arguments. You want these. You want people to talk because you want both sides to be able to 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 fight with one another rhetorically it becomes harder for us to win those rhetorical battles uh, if we don't have the facts on our side. And I think one of the facts on our side uh, that we would like to have is consistency and to be able to say, well, this is exactly what the precedent that we did 20 years ago or 10 years ago. And when we don't have that or it goes in the opposite direction, and it's hypocritical, it becomes harder to make, make those arguments. But that level of rhetoric and that level of diplomacy sort of sits on top of all these other material things that happen. So I think at the end of the day, the United States is still going to be comfortable in, in sort of materially doing what it wants to do. It's just how that, the effects of that are managed socially, uh, rhetorically between individual people, that becomes a much harder to harder to do. What of Just so at a very sort of basic level, one of the arguments about like what something like the NPT is, like what is the NPT? The NPT is a, a thing that people got together and created and signed and there's ratified and things like that as a document. Uh, but it's also a norm, right? I think mo- a lot of people would argue that most of international law is basically just a, a series of norms. Some of them are codified in things like treaties and some of them are much sort of looser. So this this nuclear uh, uh, sort of, of norm that we're not going to allow this, these technologies to get out, it might be uh, non-existent in the treaty itself because of this loophole that you mentioned a second ago, but there might still be a normative uh, component to it that we don't, which is just a bad idea that we don't want to have this out there. And so we, we abide by this, this norm. Um, so, it, so in other words, even in international law, you can have situations where, depending on what the law is, there's, there's various levels of how, you know, sort of solidified this is and ratified and all that. And some, some of it is just more sort of a regular norm, but it be that as it may, norms are are consistently uh, challenged and the mechanisms by which they affect behavior um, are are often disputed and can change and so one of the things that people talk about with with heavily internalized norms is they become sort of habitual um and so you might think like for, with this this example you know it's like we just we just don't spread these technologies right we don't even we don't even think about it it's just something that we don't do right because there's a strong sort of normative commitment to it and we don't even it's, it's unthinking in the way that we do it but then when it happens, that challenges the the existence of this thing as a as a habit, right? Because if it's if it's a habit, how did you break out of it? And then it requires reinforcement, right? So typically, what happens is when a norm is challenged, when there's deviant behavior from the norm, it it either means that the norm is is falling apart, or alternately, I think that's probably the case here. It signals that the the norm needs to be sort of resolidified. You need to like circle the wagons and sort of get people back to realize this is this was a norm that we had. And we continue to have, and it's important for us to have it, and you need to make arguments for why it's important. And so what I was alluding to a second ago about it's harder to make arguments, it's going to be harder for the United States to say this is a norm that we should all uphold when we didn't do it ourselves right. And so if we, if we think this norm is important because we want other people to obey it, other countries to obey it, we need to be making arguments for why it's important. And that just comes harder to do that when you when you break it yourself. But I and I do think your your intuition here is right that there there is this norm um, against this practice. Uh and it'll be interesting to see. I mean one one possibility is this this norm starts to kind of degrade. You know, it, it starts it starts today with this, you know, AUKUS deal. Uh tomorrow it might degrade with another country making a bilateral deal, you know, and and then the, the international system is going to have to respond to it. Or the, the it'll be reinforced and affirmed by countries that care about it. They'll be making arguments about why it's important. Um, and so I think, you know, that's also a possibility. I, I, would, I would think it's going to be the latter case, but I'm not an NPT guy. But I think that that's, it's indicative, I think, of a, a, a sort of social phenomenon here in addition to the sort of material kind of uh, phenomenon we were just talking about.
1: Thanks, Marcus. I really appreciate you joining me today.
0: Jeff, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot, and I thought you brought a lot of expertise to the table. And so this was a pleasure.
1: And we'll see you next time. I have done extensive research on nuclear submarines over the course of my career, and I I always kind of thought this is not something that's ever going to pan out for me. This is not like a great career direction of, of investigating nuclear submarines.
0: In other words, the nuclear submarine is your face-to-face diplomacy. That's right. Exactly. So when something happens, when a summit happens, it's like your Super Bowl.
1: Exactly. Yes. Right. So I, I saw the news and I thought to myself, Jeff, this is your time to shine. This is the moment that your career has been leading up to. And I had this uh, this idea, you know, hey, I should like write an op-ed or you know, one of those monkey cage pieces in the Washington Post or something. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I should do that. Got a couple hours to kill, you know. And then I thought, or, or I could finally start that rewatch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in order of their actual time they took place in the universe, not in the order that they were released to the public, right? And I opted with the Marvel option. (laughs) So there was no op-ed, but there was a moment where I was like, "You know what? This is it. This is the things are finally coming up, Jeff." by at that moment passed.
0: I think I told you that we we had not my wife and I had not seen any of the Marvel movies, and we started Iron Man, the first one, the, the, as they were sure, released, yeah. uh, and we're almost done. So that was about six months ago. We have about ten more minutes to go. We've been <laughs> sidetracked with other projects. <laughs> Uh, but we will eventually finish
1: it. This is going to be a lifelong pursuit at this rate. You know, we <laughs> begin, begin a new movie every year. If they never release another movie, you'll finish um, at the end of like 2034 or something like that.
0: Right. And then we'll turn to Star Wars, a, a, a genre or, or, or a, a group of movies I've never seen a single one of. Um, we'll turn eventually we'll get there.